Good afternoon, and welcome to the second event in our new technology and old rules, constructing a crypto regulatory framework. My name is Jennifer Schulp, and I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Regulation of cryptocurrency sits at the intersection of multiple regulatory regimes. Because crypto can alternately be seen as a commodity, a security, a currency, or something else entirely, crypto has been regulated to date by overlapping and incomplete regulatory frameworks, drawing criticism from all corners. So how should crypto be regulated, and by whom? Today's panel continues our consideration of these questions by focusing on the role of banking regulators. We're honored to be joined today by a fantastic panel with a wide variety of experiences in addressing how banking regulation interacts with crypto. We only have an hour and a lot to talk about, so I'm happy to pass along the microphone to our moderator, John Hill, who covers banking regulation at Law360. John? Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you to all our audience members as well for joining us today. As Jennifer said, I'm John Hill, the senior banking reporter for Law360, and I'm pleased to introduce you to our panel this afternoon. First up, we have Zai Masari, who is a partner in Davis Polk and Worldwell's financial institutions and fintech practices. Zai is a thought leader in her field, advising banks, fintechs, technology companies, and others on the fast-moving legal landscape for digital assets and cryptocurrency. Next, we have Albert Forkner, who is the Banking Commissioner for the state of Wyoming. It was on his watch that Wyoming became the first state in the nation to issue a crypto banking license known as a Special Purpose Depository Institution Charter, or SPEEDY for short. Personally, I think I prefer Spidey, but maybe I watch too many Marvel movies. And finally, we have Dan Ari, who is a professor at Cornell Law School. Dan has written extensively on the intersection between financial regulation and financial innovation. He was also one of the outside experts consulted for the recent President's Working Group report on stablecoins. So before we get into things, I want to remind our audience that they can submit their own questions for our panelists today. You can do so through Facebook and Twitter using the hashtag CatoEcon. We'll also be taking questions through our YouTube live chat and the Cato website. But that's enough housekeeping for now, so let's kick off our discussion with a brief round of opening statements from our panelists on what they see as some of the biggest challenges facing bank regulators as they grapple with the rise of cryptocurrency and why this is such a tough nut to crack. So let's start with you, Dan. Great, uh, and thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I think when we combine uh, banking uh, and crypto, we're really dealing with two parallel but distinct sets of issues. Uh, one are crypto as assets on bank balance sheets, either on the bank's own behalf or on behalf of their clients, uh, two, uh, crypto and most notably stable coins as liabilities uh, on a bank's balance sheet uh, and as then part of a new uh, payment rail. The policy discussion uh, in connection with both of these issues is still uh, at a relatively early stage. Um, we can look at the PWG uh, report, uh, the OCC's recent letter to get a sense of where we're at in terms of the progress in tackling these issues. Uh, accordingly, while we can confidently identify the range of risks that we're dealing with, cybersecurity, custody, operational and liquidity risks, for example, we're still at an interesting and frankly tricky moment uh, in the development of uh, crypto regulation in the banking sector. And I think most importantly, uh, while the contours of the technology and its implications are shaping our approach to regulation, 
simultaneously, the approach to regulation as it's unfolding is also inevitably going to shape uh, the future trajectory of that technology uh, and its applications. So I'm looking forward to the discussion, um, and I'll hand it back to you. Thank you. And uh, Albert, we'll take you next. Yeah, thank you. And uh, it's great to be here with the, with the, the panelists and um, uh, have the opportunity to share a little bit about Wyoming. And, and, and what the approach that we took here in, in looking at banking and uh, blending traditional financial services and digital assets was how do you define what what these assets are? How does it fit within an existing framework that didn't contemplate digital assets? And then just providing a, a stable banking relationship for those that are in the crypto uh, industry, if you will. And, and that's the, the path that Wyoming took a few years ago and, and really started with looking at uh, um, what, is, what is it that the industry needs as far as, as banking services and how do we integrate that? And, and then how do you get uh, digital assets integrated into the, the plumbing of the financial system, which is the, the UCC? So those are all things that were tackled and, and I, you know, I happen to like kind of land right in the middle of all of that and, and figure out how, how we can weave in digital assets into the UCC without going completely off the rails. Uh, and then also starting to think through what are the real risks if you are going to be a digital asset bank, um, aside from just, again, the, the simple fiat deposit relationships. Uh, if you're going to be a custodian, uh, what does that look like and what are your responsibilities and what are the protections that we can give to the, the, uh, the customers, the institution, whether they're retail uh, or sophisticated institutional customers. And that has been, been as I mentioned, a, a two to three year process. Uh, I think we've landed in a pretty good place, but what we know is there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, in who exactly has the authority at the federal level. Uh, and we've carved out this, you know, kind of what, what the state's role is. But as we all know, banking in the U.S. is, is a complex structure, uh, and, and probably for good reason, but uh, it also can provide some real confusion with those when you are uh, coming to an intersection between uh, a very new and emerging and rapidly evolving uh, asset class to a, a older, um, um, maybe uh, legacy glacial speed moving system. So I think, uh, I think it, there, there's a ways to go, but we have definitely made a lot of strides in the last three years, I would say. Thank you for that. And uh, Zai, we turn to you now. Yeah, thank you, John, and thanks to the Cato Institute for having us here today. Um, this topic is the most interesting topic in financial services and certainly financial regulation uh, of the day. Um, and I'm lucky enough as part of my practice to see um, the really full range, I think, of crypto and blockchain-based activities, at least as they intersect with the world of financial services in particular. And I think, you know, John, your question was, like, why is it so challenging for regulators right now to regulate crypto activities? Um, and I think one of the reasons is because cryptocurrency isn't one thing and blockchain isn't one thing at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So, you know, in my own practice, I see small startup companies doing 
really innovative new things involving new types of digital assets, new types of blockchain protocols, whether they're DeFi related or recent, more recently the you know, DAO um, activities uh, incorporating new governance ideas um, into blockchain protocols, um, you know, to the sort of um, CFI world, right, where you have cryptocurrency firms, um, native cryptocurrency firms developing what look more like um, regulated financial services. So exchange activities, dealing activities, asset management activities, but involving cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency activities, all the way to small, medium and large size banks who at the moment are just trying to figure out what this stuff is, where's the value in it for the banks, for the bank customers and trying to get their arms around how to engage in crypto activities within the scope of the law. And so what regulators are faced with is this really amazing, difficult, and very interesting challenge, which is classifying tokens, classifying activities so that they fit into existing regulatory regimes. And that's been the exercise over the past, I don't know, seven or eight years to this point. Um, setting aside, you know, what Albert's done in Wyoming, which is a bit of uh, legal innovation. But I think the challenge, you know, is, is a little bit like the early days of science, when scientists were really people who just named stuff and classified stuff. That's really what's been going on in cryptocurrency regulation so far. And I think now we're seeing real pressure on that approach that is classifying cryptocurrency activities into existing categories, because these categories often don't fit well. And I think that's really what regulators are struggling with, including regulators of banks um, and affiliates of banks trying to figure out um, you know, whether banks can, should uh, be allowed to engage in this activity. And it's, um, it's complicated and, and exciting. Well, you talk about classifying these assets and, and you know, we've, we've seen a number of regulators and lawmakers compare crypto assets to things like subprime mortgages and risky derivatives, uh, things that helped fuel the 2008 financial crisis. And so, you know, I, I put this to you and the rest of the group as well. Is that the right analogy? And are regulators drawing the right lessons from the financial crisis as they think about how to regulate crypto? Maybe I'll start, John. I, I don't want to cut in front of my fellow, fellow panelists, but to me, what's one really interesting point about crypto is a way that it's different from um, significant portions of what sort of caused the last financial crisis, right? So usually we think about systemic risk and how to regulate systemic risk is starting from the big institutions because they're the ones with the size and the scale and the connectivity um, to our financial system first and the economy as a whole. Second, um, crypto is really different. Um, I think it's, it's quite different than how most financial innovations happen because it didn't start as an institutional product that was then sort of built out to scale at retail, you know, at the retail level. Instead, it started as a grassroots retail thing that is now starting to bubble up into the institutional world. And that makes it a little bit different. And, and I think, um, you know, regulators and frankly, lawyers like me tend to think by analogy all the time. So you've got a token, you look at its economic functions, its legal characteristics, and you try to frame how that asset should fit into existing law by reference to those characteristics. And maybe some of those characteristics look like securities. They might look like money. They might look like derivatives. 
I think the trick with digital assets is sometimes it looks a little bit like all of those things or other times like none of them. Um, and that's uh, and that's kind of why it's interesting to try to classify these things. So I think drawing simple analogies in this context is really hard. I might oh, add, uh, I, I agree at, uh... Uh, one, I, yeah, I would say that's not a very good analogy uh, to point back to that. Uh, but where I think the analogy may work is how those, you know, uh, the assets are used um, and or potentially abused. I think uh, if, if say, you, you allow rehypothecation of certain uh, digital assets, you could run into some issues. Uh, I think you can uh, have some real settlement risk issues. If, uh, if you don't have the proper uh, uh, regulatory um, requirements in place, uh, I, I think the, and we may touch on it later, and, and what I was very cognizant of is, as we were building out the program here is blending of risks uh, in, a, in an institution, and meaning that uh, if you're going to have a, a traditional commercial bank start uh, delving into the digital asset space, whether it's just custody or other things, uh, you could have some real um, uh, elevated risk if, if, if they've got uh, credit risk on the balance sheet. All of a sudden you run into credit quality problems, uh, but you're also running a uh, uh, minting stable coins or running a stable coin network, uh, and you've got some increased operational risks there. Uh, I think you could run into some real problems. That's, that's why we were very focused on uh, with our bank charter is to remove one of those risks, i.e. credit risk. I mean, they can't lend out of the SPDI uh, because the, the amount of operational risk is significant. And I think banks that uh, are looking at that, um, again, if you if you balloon those up, you could really, then, then the analogy starts to look more like the, the financial crisis because you've, you've created uh, a risk profile that uh, may be extremely difficult to manage. Yeah, and I suppose I would simply add, uh, and I think I agree with pretty much everything that's already been said, that at the instrument level, uh, these analogies are useful uh, only insofar as we drill down deeper uh, into the product features, uh, something which the law across securities, uh, futures, banking, uh, have done really since the introduction of these regimes, certainly at the, the federal level. And there's lots of differences there uh, across products, which means that the legal treatment may be different and the analogy may be strong or weak on that basis. Uh, but at a more general level, the analogy has, I think, two elements to it that I, my take is that this is what policymakers or pundits when they're referring to this analogy are really talking about. Uh, one is the lesson from the financial crisis surrounding uh, the use of leverage um, uh, and you know, the rehypothecation example is a, is a good example in that regard, uh, that uh, unsecured leverage um, uh, taken to extremes often has systemic effects, regardless of where you see it, inside crypto or outside crypto. Uh, two, while the financial crisis wasn't really about banking, uh, it's hard to understand the impact of the financial crisis without understanding that things that happened outside of banks were enormously important uh, to um, uh, the cause of the crisis uh, and its subsequent reverberations in the real economy. And that has an interesting sort of morality tale in the context of what we're talking about today, which is to what extent do we want to integrate this new system into the banking system? 
2007, 2008, if the structured finance system had been entirely divorced of the conventional banking system, uh, I venture to say that both the size and severity of the crisis, but ultimately the subsequent regulatory response would be far different uh, than it was. And so in having the conversations about whether to bring this new ecosystem into the conventional banking system, we need to be aware that not only are there opportunities there, but we may be sowing the seeds of future problems if we don't do it right. Well, on that point, are there risks uh, that, that you feel banks themselves perhaps are underappreciating as they look to integrate these assets into their existing business models? Uh, I think they probably know the risks, um, uh, at least the bankers that I've talked to, probably know the risks uh, better than the rest of us. Um, and especially in my world, I'm a, I'm a payments geek, I'm a payment technology guy. The people that I'm talking to are in ops. Uh, they're in compliance. Uh, they're to the extent that uh, the bigger banks are developing their own technology um, uh, piece uh, within their organizations. I'm talking to those folks. And those folks look at the existing technology infrastructure of large banks, which is based on a, well, it's based on COBOL still, some of it, um, where we pre-internet based tech that then uh, bringing uh, these new assets, these digital assets um, that are based on an open technology platform based on APIs, um, that's a huge technological challenge, first and foremost, uh, that creates cybersecurity operational risks that come from uh, having to bolt on yet another system to, uh, in the case of large banks, legacy IT systems that are already been bolted together uh, in a Frankensteinian sort of way. Uh, and then on top of that, there's the actual, what are you doing once you've got that technology layer built in? And they're, I think they're pretty hip to the, uh, the resulting uh, settlement risks, the liquidity risks. Uh, I think they're going in with eyes wide open, uh, which is, uh, you know, I think relatively good news um, uh, in that respect. What they don't have yet is clarity on the regulatory front about what's permitted um, and therefore what the future involvement of banks and crypto is likely to look like. Zai, you, you advise a lot of these financial institutions. What, what do you see? Yeah, I, I so agree with Dan. I think, um, you know, as I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, crypto is not one thing and to banks, it's not one thing either, right? So I think the points that Dan uh, is making is they're exactly right. Um, the banks are looking at this from a technological perspective. Can and should we use blockchain technology to enhance our existing systems? Um, and there are you know, lots of opportunities and lots of challenges as they think through that, including, for example, how the new technology interfaces with legacy systems or does it replace it? Um, those are challenging um, enterprise-wide uh, conversations um, that are, I think are less about uh, what we think of as crypto risk, right? On the other side, you, um, you know, I heard someone say something really smart, which is, you know, all banks, uh, whether they know it or not, are exposed to crypto risk um, because bank clients are dealing in crypto. That includes corporations of all sorts. It of course includes the crypto, what I call the crypto native firms. It includes their individual clients, their retail depositors. Um, everybody has crypto exposure these days. And so in one way or another, the banks already have some risk exposure to crypto, even if they never touch crypto itself, right? And I think, 
they all know that um, and they feel it. Um, they also feel a risk from not doing crypto activities, right? They see a lot of innovation, a lot of value creation, right? Maybe short-term, maybe long-term, I don't think we know the answer yet, but they see value creation happening in financial services and can't yet fully participate in it. And I think they see that as a separate kind of risk. So um, there are risks everywhere. And I think um, my clients for sure are well aware of them. Dan mentioned uh, regulatory uncertainty, and and I know that uh, Wyoming has been something a leader, uh, something of a leader in this space. You know, trying to to get out in front of uh, other regulators there. But um, I, I'm, so for that reason, I want to turn now to a question from our audience. It's Casey from Slido, who is asking uh, for Albert specifically. Do you have a sense uh, are other regulators pushing forward in this space? And if so, do you find that your approaches are similar? Uh, no, that's a, it is a great question. And it kind of, if you think about what I you know, said earlier about having a complex system, so that means we've got a complex regulatory structure and legal structure as well in the, in the dual banking system. Uh, and then you got all of the non-bank uh, layered on top of that. Uh, so the short answer is, is yes. The people we've talked to, we, we started this process in really 2017, 22, and started reaching out um, to a lot of my federal colleagues and actually agencies that uh, hadn't even intersected with a previous, uh, like the SEC, the CFTC, and, and even outside the U.S. and regulators and, and, you know, the FCA or FINMA or the ADGM, FSRA, and uh, just trying to figure out what was there uh, that we could incorporate here in the U.S. and then decide if we liked it or not. Uh, and since we've, uh, once we completed the, uh, the initial uh, regulatory process and, and, and supervisory program as well. We've, we've had continual discussions. Uh, you'll see a lot of states uh, are looking at it. I, I've, I'm, we're probably half the states have called up now and wanting to know, hey, how did you do this? Is this something that we can do? Uh, meanwhile, we continue to have dialogues with our federal counterparts, the Fed, the FDIC, and uh, uh, the OCC as well. Um, so, but the problem is, is, is most states uh, have the ability, especially one like, like Wyoming, to move a little bit quicker and for, for various reasons. Um, and, and so I've, I've said for a long time that, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, the states are incubators of innovation. And, and a lot of things start kind of uh, to, as I pointed earlier, these grassroots efforts um, in digital assets you can do something like that at a state level. Uh, but once you start bringing that in into the banking system, uh, you know, uh, that, that changes that dynamic. We, we've, we've been dealing with digital asset activities in the non-bank side, namely uh, money transmission space. And is it money transmission or not? This, this probably can still be debated. But uh, so we've had this exposure uh, really not even in my office uh, in, in Wyoming and since 20, I'd say 14. Uh, and think about where the federal bank regulators were. Uh, it, it was not that early, at least not the kind of depth of conversations that we were having. So I, I think you'll continue to see that. There's obviously, when you have got uh, 50 uh, independent sovereigns trying to come up with a regulatory screen, scheme that works across the country, there's a lot of friction. Uh, there's a lot of pain points. I think we haven't figured that out just yet. 
but um, I, I think everything from the the policy sprint that the federal regulators just uh, released their initial uh, paper on to what the states are doing from a network supervision aspect uh, are are um, bringing together some at least some common thinking. Uh, there's still a, quite a bit of differentiation there. Uh, we have not uh, solved for all of it, but I, I think you'll continue to see those efforts um, get more aligned as as the uh, all of us regulators, uh, bank and non-bank uh, and markets regulators get a good sense for what the assets are and what it can be done with the assets and, and what the risks, uh, it, it, and we're still uncovering new risks. So um, I think we'll continue to see that evolve. And so just to open that up to the rest of the panel, what do you think federal regulators can learn from state regulators like Albert here and vice versa? That's a difficult question, uh, to be honest. The nature of experiments, of course, is that you don't entirely know what you're going to learn. Um, I agree in the, the core value of experiments for that reason, uh, but we don't know yet, really, um, how... Uh, uh, demand will unfold uh, for, uh, I prefer Spidey as well, uh, let's face it, uh, uh, what type of demand will ultimately emerge for Spidey as a particular type of legal innovation, um, and what other sort of products are going to emerge and ultimately reside on the shelf. Um, I think the, the broader point, though, is that if we're going to have this dual system that we have in the United States, and, you know, this isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, one of the things we can use and channel the benefit of is to be able to use these type of state level experiments over time uh, to learn both what uh, works and doesn't work from a regulatory perspective, but also what works and doesn't work from a market perspective and what type of uh, legal features uh, institutions uh, have the most demand for, what type of risks those legal features create and how best to regulate them. Oh, still too early to say, really, what sort of lessons we'll learn. Uh, we just have to keep a pencil and pad uh, handy over the next several years, I think. I think that's right, Dan, just to jump in after you on that, that point. I also think, um, to be honest, crypto markets, just with a few blips here and there, have gone only in one direction, and that's up. And I think um, just based on past history, uh, Oftentimes, regulatory lessons are learned not in the good times, but in the bad times. Um, and that, you know, that could be good, that could be bad. We can set aside the normative judgment there. But um, I would expect that at some point we'll see something, you know, pretty serious happen in the, in the crypto world um, that results in regulators examining what happened, why it happened. Um, and that's often when regulators really start uh, to get involved in thinking about um, first principles of regulation of, of new types of activities. And frankly, that's when Congress often gets involved uh, as well. I mean, I cut my teeth as a lawyer um, working on Dodd-Frank Act reform um, after the financial crisis. And I think that's a great example of um, the mobilization that you see um, at the federal level when something goes wrong. Um, and maybe that's how this story has to go as well. 
If oh, I can John might have one last thing about the learning <laughs> from each other that the idea of the uh, you know the SPDI actually it it was in a Federal Reserve paper uh, I, I believe in 2016 where they uh, the the team asked the question is there a need for a new type of bank charter uh, as we delve into this and and so what uh, Wyoming did is said hey. That's a great idea. Let's let's take that and run with it. And so, um, uh, even just you know, as you kind of ideas are floated, uh, I think uh, various regulatory agencies can take that and, and based on their perspective, their expertise can can maybe bring certain things to fruition. So it it, uh, it was actually you, you could argue that this was a, a federal uh, idea before it became uh, a, a real thing here in Wyoming. And I just wanted to follow up quickly on Zahi's point. Um, the European Union is sort of a, uh, a generation ahead of the U.S. on these experiments uh, with the e-money and other uh, related directives. And we're sort of seeing this dynamic play out now where the first generation of these firms under the first generation of the legislation, uh, some of them have started to unravel, uh, either because the business models uh, didn't work or because the regulation had holes in it that didn't sufficiently uh, uh, protect the credibility of the, the claims that these firms were making. Um, which is just to highlight that uh, uh, I completely agree that we're likely to get the most lessons uh, during the bad times uh, about this. Um, right now, products are being put on the shelf um, and I suspect that we'll see more, uh, but which ones you know, uh, blow up uh, when you try to open them uh, is yet to come. You, know, so you talk about the bad times, and I, I know that uh, one of the, the questions out there really is, you know, how do you calibrate a, a proper prudential framework for crypto assets? And I, the, the Basel Committee put out a proposal where you'd have um, capital requirements uh, such that banks would have to hold capital equal to their, basically to their exposures, you know, one for one to higher risk crypto assets. Uh, very conservative approach, uh, got a lot of pushback from the industry. Uh, so, you know, what do you think on that? Is that too conservative? And what, what are kind of the trade-offs here of this approach? I'll start on that one. I don't think it's conservative. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, ultimately. It depends on, you know, for your bank, what sort of capital requirements you're using. But to put them in the top category, I don't think is unwarranted, given the historical volatility that we've seen to date. Uh, the point of capital is to absorb losses while a bank is a going concern. And the more volatile the asset, uh, the more capital you should hold against it. Um, and relative to most assets on a bank balance sheet, maybe not other types of institutions, but relative to most assets on a bank balance sheet, uh, crypto is extremely volatile. I think that's right. I think um, there are a couple interesting points about that consultation. Um, and... Uh, in fairness and for full disclosure, I was involved in advising one of the trade associations as um, we, we went through the comment uh, process. But um, I think the, the proposal is, is potentially a bit too conservative, maybe not in the sort of bottom line uh, capital requirements for the most risky crypto assets, which in fact, um, depending on the specific capital requirements for the specific institution might be more than one-to-one, -one, which is kind of interesting. Um, but um, again, I think the committee um, 
found it very challenging to appropriately classify different types of uh, crypto assets in a way um, that um, calibrates the capital requirements uh, to the specific kinds of risk posed. Um, just as one, one example, right? Um, a big uh, area of discussion among um, banks and non-banks alike is using um, blockchains to tokenize existing types of assets, whether they're um, securities or um, deposits or uh, other sort of well-known traditional financial instruments and using blockchains as a way to speed settlement processes or um, payment processes. Um, you know, reading through the consultation, it, it seemed to go back and forth a little bit on what treatment those assets would receive. Do they fall into the crypto asset category and thus have to be subject to additional op risk or other capital charges just by virtue of being recorded on a blockchain, even if there are securities, a global security certificate in DTCC, or is that kind of asset just subject to the normal kinds of capital charges that a bank would take against, against the asset? Um, and so, you know, I, I agree with Dan, I think probably some of it was not particularly conservative or too conservative, um, but other aspects just reflect the challenge posed in this area of trying to figure out what goes into what bucket. And I might add, you know, so as a bank regulator, you know, capital is king, right? And uh, you, can, you can probably never have too much capital to make the regulator happy. But uh, but an understanding that, uh, you know, you need that uh, capital to be working for you. Uh, yeah, I, I think what was said is, is absolutely right. That, that if you just lump it into one one big bucket, that's not the appropriate um, uh, approach, I don't believe. Now, to Dan's point, the volatility is such that, yeah, if, it, if it's a highly volatile asset, of course, there, there needs to be a significant amount of capital. And I actually heard uh, an industry uh, professional you know, in the, the crypto space argue that the the proposal was was actually not high enough. Um, you know, If you're talking kind of more true traditional cryptocurrency, but uh, you know, managing that uh, that risk and you know, identifying what the, the risks are behind the various types of, of assets is, is going to be very important. If, if banks are going to hold on balance sheet um, and, and then appropriately, appropriately account for the, the, the various kinds of risks those assets may bring to the institution. So I wanted to bring in a question from the audience. Um, this is an anonymous user uh, from Slido. Do you see the discussions around regulating crypto leading to modifications of the current regulatory framework to better meet needs apart from crypto? I could jump in if that's, uh, if that's helpful, John. I love this question, right? And I'll frame it, um, frame an answer in a convoluted literally way, of course. Uh, in the context of the president's working group report on stablecoins, right? Because I think stablecoins presents a really great example of um, uh, an instrument and a set of activities that's gotten a lot of regulatory scrutiny, but economically and sometimes legally look a lot like existing activities, right? So the president's working group, uh, one of the recommendations in the report is to subject uh, custodial wallet providers, um, and I read that as uh, digital wallet providers that provide services involving stablecoins, 
to federal regulation, right? Um, under existing law, those activities are treated as money transmission and as stored value activities. There are tons of existing stored value businesses that have nothing to do with stable coins, but at least arguably, um, economically, legally, um, from a consumer protection standpoint, might present the same kinds of risks. And as soon as you start to look at, um, you know, at stable coins and regulating them or regulating wallet activities involving them at the federal level, it does at least raise a question, well, what about the other stuff? Um, are we, should we be regulating that differently as well? Um, and I think this is a really, this is a really great question. Or in the securities context, if we think some digital assets are securities, should we be modifying our securities laws to accommodate blockchain-based securities activities, not just for the tokens that are investment contracts under Howie, but that are just flat out equity securities? Um, to me, this is a really, really interesting question and one that requires a little bit of um, uh, an open mind um, and enlightened regulatory thinking, which makes it fun. Dan, did you want to add anything there? Sure, and, and my chuckle sort of came from my, my first thought went to the stablecoin uh, report uh, as well. Uh, and this takes me to the motivation for my original comment that we're at a stage where uh, the technology and its applications are going to be influenced by the regulatory regimes we impose and that the regulatory regimes we impose are gonna influence the technology and its applications. Uh, the stablecoin report took a particular approach uh, to how to regulate stablecoins that raises a ton of questions about what this ecosystem will look like if you bring all of the stablecoin liabilities onto a bank's balance sheet. Um, uh, Zay just mentioned one that sort of immediately came to my mind when I read the report, which was, okay, who are these wallet providers now if they're not banks? Um, and... Who do we envision that they are now? What role do we envision for them in the future if these liabilities are issued by banks and banks become the gatekeepers in effect uh, to certain parts of the crypto universe by virtue of the fact that they're the only ones who get to issue um, uh, the poker chips uh, in this particular casino? Uh, and so I do think it's a great question. I'm going to punt on having an answer because I think this highlights the core challenge that makes it difficult to design policy in this area right now, uh, which is that the applications are emerging so quickly, the ecosystem and the institutions within it are changing and evolving and emerging so quickly uh, that uh, when we even float the possibility of imposing a particularly regulatory framework on top of them, there's sort of the nailing of the jello to the wall effect where immediately, because it's such a responsive uh, set of industry participants is that you can see almost in real time the thing that you thought you were regulating changing in response to the regulation, not that you've implemented, but just the, that you've proposed. Dan, if I could, sorry, John, I don't mean to jump in. Go I ahead. love this topic is so awesome and exciting. I just thought I'd give another really quick example, if you don't mind, of the nailing the jello to the wall, which is the best analogy I've heard for this, right? I actually think this is exactly what happened um, and probably doesn't explain the whole phenomenon, but, but it might explain some of what happened with DeFi, right? Um, you know, the SEC for a long time has been thinking, I know this is a bank regulation panel, but that's okay. The SEC has been thinking for a long time about what digital assets are securities and not, um, and has issued guidance in the past about, um, you know, a token, 
issued by a protocol that's sufficiently decentralized, like Bitcoin, not being a security, right? And so the industry looks at that and is like, wait a second, we get it. If we decentralize, our tokens are not securities. And that's exactly what happened, right? I think the result of that is a much more difficult regulatory challenge with actual disintermediation having happened through, frankly, sometimes astounding um, technology development, um, but a challenging, uh, a challenging problem for regulators uh, nonetheless. And I think it's a great, it's a great analogy and exactly what we've seen happen. You know, I think uh, you know, you know, Dan had a good point that uh, will will the regulation drive you know the innovation, and I would say that that is is not the, the approach uh, I, I think that we want to have uh, now. You know, I think the the widely used uh, line is you know the the technologists want to just move fast, break things. I think I think we're moving past that now. The serious developers, the serious innovators in financial services and digital assets understand. The compliance requirements, but uh, um, and since we've we've opened this topic about the stable coins and the presence working group, uh, I will opine, um, uh, and I should say, you know, because uh, I am the commissioner, the the views represented here are those of the commissioner. Um, because uh, I just don't, I, I think a lot of things were lacking there. I, I I applaud the effort of starting to talk about stable coins, but. Uh, a big, big thing missing. And of course I'm biased, but was the, the state perspective, as I mentioned earlier, we've been dealing with some of these issues for a while, but if you, if you want to say, okay, well, if a bank is a stable coin issuer, if that's one thing we're going to talk about, okay, let's, let's talk about what does that look like? What's the regulatory structure, the supervisory framework that needs to be in place for a bank this, but should all stable coin uh, issuers be uh, IDIs? No, um, and, and I don't think so. And like I said, uh, um, those that are looking at it probably do understand the risk, but I would say not all of them uh, do. And, and as was mentioned earlier, the, the systems are not structured. Um, at some point, you do have so many add-ons to the, the core structure that you, you really open up some operational risks. Uh, but, but we have, uh, we kind of did tackle the, the discussion or the question of, well, if a bank does issue a stable coin and that bank happens to be an SPDI, uh, what are our expectations as a regulator? And I think that's what the approach that we've taken, that here are certain things that you want to do. Uh, I've even had these discussions with the Federal Reserve that, hey, if you want to understand stable coin activity uh, and, and, and the risks involved with that and, and the settlement risks and liquidity risks, uh, but you want to also have real-time accounting. We have uh, a, a, an open door to come join us and sit at the table with having a bank, uh, an SPDI, uh, hold the cash backing the stablecoin at the, the Federal Reserve, and we can do real-time 24-7, 365 verification that those assets are there. So that's one specific use case. Now, if it's a non-bank uh, and they're, the, the, asset, the, the cash is being held somewhere else, or if it's not cash. I mean, so there's so many things about that that to, to cram that into uh, insured depository institutions only, uh, I think is, is gonna be extremely stifling. Things will continue to stay outside the banking system uh, for various reasons. But uh, so, so to, to the point that I think Jay said, uh, th there are a lot of things to consider and we don't want the regulation to drive the innovation. Just to restate the president's working group report did, you know, one of the 
most controversial or notable recommendations from it was, you know, limiting stablecoin issuance to insured depository institutions. Um, this has been questioned by others, not just you, Albert. Uh, Fed Governor Waller, I think, has, has come out and questioned whether that makes sense. But let me put that to the rest of the panel, Dan and Zaid. Does it make sense to, to you know, keep them in the bank, you know, right in a bank like that? Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to speak to this. I mean, most of my uh, work over the last several years has been uh, on this question uh, to some degree or another. I have a book coming out uh, on this question. Uh, I advised, uh, I presented my views uh, to the president's working group on this and they've been extremely, I think, uh, generous and courteous uh, with their time, uh, including after the issuance of the report where I continue to talk to them with a variety of questions that I have about what this new system envisions. Uh, this was not on my bingo card, um, to be frank. Uh, I think uh, there are a number of other options that could have been pursued here uh, that struck a better balance between the legitimate, I think, consumer investor protection issues uh, around uh, stable coins and creating an environment that cultivated uh, innovation to at least see where this new system was uh, gonna take us. Um, and specifically there, I think there are uh, infrastructure issues here that could have been uh, dealt with uh, differently. Um, I think the, uh, I'm, I'm just gonna call it Spidey from now on, it, it's in my head. Uh, there's nothing uh, that anybody can do about it. I think the Spidey is a good example there where if you're willing to uh, put constraints on intermediation, uh, there's really no reason that we shouldn't plug uh, some of these institutions into the conventional uh, Federal Reserve uh, uh, settlement uh, account uh, and therefore uh, the conventional uh, payment system. But in doing so, you keep all of the risk, the operational risk, the liquidity risk, the settlement risk, outside of the conventional banking system while enabling them uh, to plug into a set of common infrastructure that they don't, uh, uh, many of them don't currently uh, have access to. And there was a, a range of options that were considered along those lines uh, that I think would have uh, struck a balance. Ultimately, what I think the PWG leaned on was uh, that they want or they prioritize the consumer protection issues over all of these other issues, over innovation, over competition, um, and that's not, uh, that, that's a defensible position, uh, but I do think it leaves a lot of questions and a lot of gains left on the table that I don't think uh, are likely to materialize in a world where you've made banks the gatekeepers uh, of this new uh, ecosystem. You know, I was looking for the applause button on the uh, the Zoom here, and they, they apparently don't have one. So I was going to give a round of applause to those comments. But uh, but no, if I might just jump back in, I, I, I agree there. Uh, again, I, uh, I I can speak only to the the Spidey as is as being called today. Uh, but um, the if you think about what was done here, and we probably didn't answer everything, but we put in a lot of the things that have been requested as the bank-like supervision. And I will tell you, we spent all of uh, 2020, which is, I guess, as good a way to endure a pandemic uh, as any, is, is building uh, really a first-of-its-kind custom supervisory model that addresses all of these things that is very much bank-like, that does take took the payment systems risk manual and added to it, and the BSA manual added to it. And, and so we, again, I, that, that's one solution 
Uh, and we're actually even expanding that out to, to some non-banks that are engaged in digital asset activities and using it as a supervisory program. So I, I think that was uh, a pretty significant effort. And then also, if you think about the structure of this institution being a 100% liquid non-lending uh, uh, bank, uh, but still has all of the bank requirements, capital requirements, things like that, um, that's a pretty significant uh, in, endeavor, uh, which uh, again, like I said, I'm biased, but is a very good blending of uh, of what we know, are, what are the known risks at, in the traditional financial system, but trying to account for capture and then uh, manage and supervise some of the continuing to uh, develop risks. And John, I'd, I'd love to jump in on this point too and just sure. be a little wonky for, for a moment, right? Um, just taking a really big step back, um, maybe I can be a little bit more strident uh, than either uh, Albert or, or uh, Dan have been. Um, uh, the recommendation that stablecoin issuers all be insured depository institutions and that only IDIs can issue stablecoins um, just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, the regulation of banks, of depository institutions, is all designed to regulate an entity that is able to take deposits as its funding and then do lots of different things with that deposit funding. You know, make loans, invest in, uh, invest in all sorts of different assets. Um, that is the credit intermediation, maturity transformation, liquidity transformation. Um, that is fundamental to what banks are supposed to do because the government uh, of the United States views that as an important um, policy requirement for banks, right? They make loans to increase the supply of money in the economy and so that people can fund businesses and on and on, right? Stable coins aren't that, at least the way stablecoins have been conceived of so far, right? Stablecoins are instruments that are designed to maintain a stable value, which is like deposits, but they do that by holding high quality liquid assets only to back that obligation to maintain a stable value that is to be redeemed for face value, $1 to $1. And so imposing sort of the full scope of bank regulations as an insured depository institution um, sort of conceptually uh, doesn't really jive. Um, I do understand, though, um, what the you know what at least some regulators may have been thinking about requiring federal consolidated supervision of entities that engage in stablecoin activities. Um, they've scaled really fast. Um, you know, they're they are a little bit different than existing um, existing types of monetary instruments. Um, I think that's an important policy goal, and in fact, not a policy goal that the industry would really argue with. Um, but I think the mechanism is a little bit, um, a little bit head scratching. I think I can probably shed a bit of light on that, just on the basis of my conversation. So the, I think it's actually an empirically sort of questionable. We can debate at this point the nature of the high quality liquid assets that are being held. Some of the disclosure that we have is not granular enough. Some aren't disclosing at all. Um, sort of what got me into this entire topic to begin with was a sort of detailed study of the um, 
the money transmitter laws in each of the 50 states, which often at a time, um, and that's changing rapidly actually, at a time when a lot of these institutions just had money transmitter licenses actually gave these institutions a wide scope uh, in terms of the type of assets they could invest in. Uh, and against that backdrop where there's no, no standard rules around high quality liquid assets, no standardized disclosures around um, uh, what assets are being held. Uh, there is, I think, um, uh, and I agree with Zayan this, an intuition to, towards federal supervision, consolidated supervision there as a way of very quickly harmonizing and strengthening uh, regulation on those fronts. And then the question becomes, okay, do I have to do something new? Um, do I have to create a path? Or is there already a path available to me that does those things? And I think uh, the way that I understand, uh, uh, obviously, I'm a, a, a talking head as far as the, um, uh, well, the world, uh, but the, the PWG goes. I, I give my thoughts. I don't know how they made their decisions. Uh, the report um, landed on my desk when it landed on everybody else's desk, uh, is that they saw a path that solved that particular problem, uh, but just that problem. Um, and in so doing, uh, bracketed all of the other questions, opportunities, and challenges that exist in uh, trying to figure out how to regulate uh, this space. Uh, what they saw on the other side to create a new path was Congress. Um, and um, uh, even though what they're ultimately suggesting is an expansion of uh, well, they want Congress to expand the powers of uh, the OCC and uh, the Fed to accommodate uh, this new ecosystem is that that's easier than attempting to create an entirely new category for these institutions at the federal level. Um, and that, so this is just a, a way of expanding on this. I, I think that's the calculus, if I understand it properly. But I do completely agree, and obviously I'm the source of uh, at least some of the criticisms that that calculus uh, was a relatively narrow one uh, that raises a lot of questions and itself poses really, really big risks. And I think uh, Zaya's point here is, is the big one, is that we're taking something uh, that uh, has a lot of questions associated with it. We don't know how this market is going to turn out, and we're putting it in the middle, not just saying it can be in the middle, but it must be in the middle of the most important financial infrastructure uh, that we have, uh, that has a business model uh, that works, but works because of a specific relationship between its assets and liabilities that make it fragile. And this could potentially add to that fragility in unexpected ways that becomes, I think, the big elephant in the back of the room from my perspective when it comes to discussing the, the future of crypto and banking. Dan, I love that. And I'm sorry, John, I feel like we're, we just got really excited about this topic. Um, but Dan, that, those comments are so insightful. And I think that the recommendation also had a funny secondary effect, right? Which is, you know, banks reading the report, because of course, banks themselves are as interested in what's going on in this space as anybody. Banks reading the report thought, well, wait a second. Um, if stablecoin issuers must be IDIs and only IDIs can issue stablecoins, that must mean banks can issue stablecoins, <laughs> which is like, not, was not an obvious thing to say necessarily before 
the report, at least um, based on how the world was evolving over the last couple months. And um, it also, you know, you know similarly, um, you know, an FSOC recommendation that stablecoin activities or arrangements be designated necessarily means that they're permissible for banks or bank affiliates, depending on the type of designation. And that that was kind of an interesting side effect of that, uh, of the report. Well, so we're you know, getting short on time here. So I'm going to sound like a senator and say, give me a short answer, I, you know, yes or no right away. Uh, now I'm going to go to a, a question from the audience. Uh, this is Big Mike from Twitter. Uh, last week, Professor Chris Brummer said that regulators must choose two of three between clear rules, innovation, and consumer protection slash market integrity. Do you think it's true that we can't achieve all three? And if so, which should be prioritized? I'll take the quick answer is I, I think you can achieve all three. It is, it, it's just going to be a painful process in doing so. And it won't be a quick process if you're wanting to achieve all three. But absolutely, it, it can be be done uh, in my mind. Uh, but there's, you know, the devil's always in the details. And that would be one of them. But uh, there, there's a, a pathway to, to balance all three of them. Uh, I'll be brief as well. Uh, one, I generally make it a rule never to disagree with Chris Brummer, uh, but I will say in this particular case, I do think that there has been, uh, as a lawyer, an underestimation of the extent to which the processes that we currently have, especially in the realm of securities law uh, and uh, commodities regulation, to account for newness within the existing framework. These are not bright line rules. There are processes that um, uh, we understand very well, or at least securities lawyers and securities regulators understand very well uh, for deciding what needs to be brought within the regulatory perimeter and why. Um, and in that respect, I think the system does work fairly well. It's just that in the context of this particular and rapidly evolving market space, for all sorts of reasons, uh, there's not a full appreciation, I think, of the subtleties of that system. Um, I, I love Chris's uh, trilemma point whenever I hear it. I think, um, it, I actually don't think that the choice is so stark between two of the three always. And in fact, a, no regulatory regime achieves any of those three fully. And maybe that's not the goal. I think the goal is to do the best you can on all of them. Um, and so the trilemma is important in illustrating the trade-offs, but perhaps um, not a realistic uh, regulatory goal for, for anybody or anything. Well, I think I will uh, throw it back to Jennifer now. I see we are coming up on the end of our hour, so um, I'll toss it back to her. Thank you all. Thank you, John. And thank you so much to our great panel. That was a very interesting discussion. And I would say certainly gives me a, several analogies to use in my daily life that I had not been using before. Um, thank you also to our audience for joining this discussion about how to regulate crypto. I know there were a lot of audience questions that we didn't have the time to get to. I apologize, but it's great to see such an engaged audience. If you missed last week's discussion about the CFTC, Check out the recording available on Cato's website, and we hope you'll join us next week on December 9th when we talk about the SEC. Registration for that event is live now on Cato's website. Thanks again, and have a great afternoon.